Amen. Thank you. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 4 as we get into God's Word together this morning. Uh, I want to tell you about a man whose name is Ira Sankey. Maybe you know that name, maybe you don't. He was actually a, a partner with D.L. Moody in his ministry of preaching, and Ira Sankey was a soloist and, and uh, led worship music time, kind of like George Beverly Shea was to Billy Graham. And he found himself in 1875, so a long time ago, on a riverboat on Christmas Eve. And all these people recognized him and they said, hey, would you please sing some Christmas songs? And, and he just felt nudged by the Holy Spirit to, to sing a song called Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. And so he sang that song, and after he was done singing, there was a, a man that came up to him and said, hey, I have a question for you. Did you serve in the, in the Union Army? And uh, Sankey said, yes, I did, and asked this man if he did, and he said, no, actually, I was in the Confederate Army. But I was a sniper, and one night, I had you in my sight to kill. And you were by, myself, well, you were by yourself, you didn't see me, but I saw you. It was a full moonlit night. I was in the dark. You were very lit up. And you started singing this very same song. And I thought, well, I'll let him finish the song and then I'll kill him. And as you sang, I started thinking about my mother having sung that very same song to me. And by the end of the song, I thought, I, I can't. I can't shoot this guy. And then I thought, you know, if, if God could save someone like this from a song, then he must be God. And that, that song that you sang and you just now sang again brought me to Christ and to faith in Christ. And in particular, I remember the words of the song, that, that the part of the song uh, that said, uh, we are yours we are yours now, Lord, befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And Sankey had no idea that his life had been spared at that time. But it reminded um, him of God's faithfulness. And this account of, of God's protective hand on us, on Ira Sankey at that time, I think is an encouragement for me as I pray for my family, as I pray for you, my church family. Because we have to understand and believe that this, this is the truth. And if we do accept this, that God's protective hand is always on us, it's life-changing. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, a wind, a whirlwind, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? 
he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is God's word. I love this passage. At the top of your outline, it says this, that in these last verses of Mark 4, Jesus' authority over nature demonstrates his divinity. The disciples still didn't understand fully the divine power of Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. The account of this miracle and those in chapter 5, so we're looking ahead a little bit in chapter 5, have some things in common. They share the same location, the Sea of Galilee, the presence of the disciples, and the use of a boat. And a common theme that we just read, who is this man? So there's some important lessons here that Jesus wanted to teach the disciples and that we need to learn as well. So we're going to look at this passage and kind of break it down. And, you know, we, I want to go back the other way now. We looked ahead to Mark 5 a little bit, but I want to go back into Mark chapter 3 and review for a second because think about this day in the life of Jesus. Uh, there had been accusations by the Pharisees that Jesus was controlled by Satan. And then his mother and brothers show up and try to kidnap him thinking he's gone mad. And then leaving a crowd in the house, he goes down to the lake teaches the crowd with parables, gets into a boat and teaches from that, probably in the hot sun. And then in the evening, he's exhausted. I, I, can't, I can't even imagine a day like that. And then he gets into the boat and we, verses 35 and 36 describe what happens next. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So there seems to be almost a note of urgency in Jesus, like the, the tone that I read it with in his voice. Jesus is fully God, but, but he's fully man. And here we see him tired, exhausted, worn out. This trip would have been about five miles to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where they were to where they were going. And I think in that last sentence, it's very interesting, too, that it, it, it must have been a beautiful sight to see this little flotilla of boats, these small boats, uh, go across. And remember, all these boats were caught in the storm. It wasn't just Jesus' boat, all of them. And all of them were saved when Jesus stilled the waters. Uh, so then it says, when suddenly, without warning, and that's what it says in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 8, a furious gust came up, that's the squall, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. So what does he want them to learn, and this is number one on your outline, through the storm? Because we all have things we need to learn through the storm. What are the lessons God wants to teach us? So we need to set the scene here for a little bit. The Sea of Galilee is not a sea. It's actually a large lake. 
it's easy, the way I remember the dimensions, is it's seven miles across and 14 miles long. Uh, it's surrounded by, it's the largest, uh, it's the, I should say, the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It's about uh, six, 700 feet below sea level. So it's the lowest freshwater lake on earth. Um, its source is the Jordan River and Mount Hermon beyond that. Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet. Uh, did you know that you can snow ski on Mount Hermon? But you didn't know you could snow ski in Israel. You can. I don't think in the first century, but they could, you can today. Uh, but this is the, that's the, the physical setting of what's going on here. The Sea of Galilee is about 30 miles from the Mediterranean. And it's surrounded by high cliffs and, and mountains and steep hills and, and valleys. And so it's, it's very susceptible to high winds coming up and dropping down on the Sea of Galilee and causing a storm. So you get the idea that when they set out, everything was just fine. And then all of a sudden, it says, in, in fact, in the Luke passage, they are sailing along. Conditions seem perfect. And so Jesus, again, just needs this sleep. He's human. He's exhausted from this busy day. And this huge storm comes up and waves pour into the boat and, and threaten to sink it. I, I can imagine the, 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 these fishermen, remember, they, were, they, they knew what the lake was like and they were probably trying to, with their hands or something, to get as much water out as they could to, to try to stay alive. In fact, Matthew's account, the Greek word to describe the, what was happening is seismos which is like seismic, like an earthquake. That's how he was describing the waves and what was going on on the lake. I don't know if you've ever been on the lake in, in a storm. Um, I, I, I actually had a friend that had a Kingfisher sailboat. It has a double keel on the bottom, nice and sturdy for people who don't really know how to sail. And we trailered this boat up from Wichita, Kansas, to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we put in at Lake Michigan, and we, we spent about 10 days kind of zigzagging back and forth all the way to the top of Lake Michigan, and then back down to the boat and put it back on the trailer. We made it safely. But there was one point when we were in the middle of the lake up in the north that we encountered some really bad waves that we did not anticipate at all. They might have been five or six feet, but I'll tell you what, we all got seasick. It was not a pretty sight. Uh, I can't even imagine all the, the wind and the water going like it is. And, and you know, there was a, a, a big storm not that long ago, I don't know what it was, 10 years ago, uh, in that area on the Sea of Galilee, and, and waves were measured at 10 feet. Those are waves you could surf on, man. Those were big waves. And so this is what th th these guys are encountering here. So the disciples had no way of knowing of course, that this was God's way to teach them about a life of faith, about knowing God's power in their lives. And so we shouldn't be alarmed when things that we're not expecting to happen come into our lives. We all have those things happen, right? And so storms, and this is on your outline, storms are essential to our spiritual growth. Without difficulties, without trials, without stresses, without failures, we cannot grow to be all that God wants us to grow to be to, in Christ-likeness. I heard a counselor describe one time 
what it was like because everybody goes through that. We hit a wall, kind of. It's like we're, we're on some stairs and we, we come up to a problem and we have one of two ways we can respond. We can respond in the way God wants us to, in a way that pleases him, in a way of faith, or we can respond in sin, not trusting God. And you know, we're not going to respond. We're human. We're not going to respond perfectly every time we encounter difficulties. But, but hopefully our lives, if, if we can think of it like a stairway, it's like, a, it's like a, maybe a good stock in the stock market. It goes up and down, but you want the trend to be in an upward way. You want the trend to be going up. And that's the way it should be for, for our lives of faith. I've known some very mature believers who have said that the spiritual truths that they know the deepest are ones that they know because of hard times and problems that they've gone through. One believer, I'm not sure who, wrote this about the test that they'd gone through uh, in in a poem, and you've got it on your outline. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I think we can all identify with that. You know, without challenges and even adversity in our lives, maybe our tendency would be to be proud to be self-centered. This is why Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, had such a beautiful way of putting it in a, in a prayer. So this is what she prays for herself or prayed for herself. Dear God, let me soar in the face of the wind, up, up like, like the lark, so poised and so sure through cold or through the storm with wings to endure. Let the silver rain wash all the dust from my wings. Let me soar as he soars. Let me sing. As as he sings, let me, lift me. Let it buffet and drive me, but God, let it lift me. And when we encounter winds of difficulty, that should be our prayer. Lord, let me soar in the wind to you, to a deeper walk with you. So we've got this question on the outline, what kind of trial or challenge or even time of suffering are you going through right now? And so my my challenge to all of us is to ask God to help you make the most of whatever hard times you're going through whatever challenge is in front of you. And so the storm is raging here and just, it's going crazy. And where's Jesus? Look at verse 38. He's in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. You know, this is at least amazing, as amazing and significant as the storm going on. I I can't imagine being so fatigued that water in your face and, and the, the bumpiness of going up and down in, the, in that rough sea the, on the, the lake wouldn't be enough to wake him up. And so it, what we can't miss here is some awesome insights about the incarnation. Think about this. In a matter of what, a minute or less? 
He goes from being sleep, asleep in the weariest body you can even imagine to this extraordinary display of spiritual power. And you've got this on your outline. Here's the human weakness of complete tiredness on one hand and the all-powerful God who controls nature on the other. On our own, we, we just couldn't even imagine a God like this. Human and yet God the Son. And in the incarnation, Jesus always chose to live in complete and perfect dependence on the Father. And he knew that at any time, the Father would wake him up so that he would be able to perfectly accomplish God's will. That's what he does here. You know, in our human weakness, we mistakenly think that we are alone and that no one, not even God, knows what's happening or how we're feeling. Think of how big God is to know each of us so intimately. He has the very hairs of our head numbered. And he knows us that intimately. Each one of you, he knows your needs. He's God. That blows my mind. Nothing could be further from the truth that God is distant from us and doesn't care about us. God knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows our dreams. He knows, he knows our pain. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. And that boat and Jesus and the disciples was the object of God's care and God's concern. And it was just as necessary, the, the storm and what they learned in the, in the waves and the, and the wind was just as necessary as what comes next. And that's what we learn through the calm. That's number two on your outline. What we learn through the calm. We learn through difficult times we go through, of course, and, but we also need times that, to, hit, to listen to God speak to us like it talks about in 1 Kings 19 in a still, small voice. And it seems like the disciples were pretty frantic. I know I would have been. And look at verse 38. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I don't think they were overreacting. Remember, four of them were seasoned fishermen, at least four of them, probably more. They knew what these storms were like, but they knew that this one was different. You can't expect men who are, are, think they're about to die to be thinking rationally, but if they could have, they would have remembered the way that God had expressed his care for them already in choosing them to be with Jesus and be discipled by him. But whatever the disciples did, it woke Jesus up and look at verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Literally, in Greek, it's be muzzled. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. The tense in Greek indicates that it was immediately calm. Immediately. Uh, all three gospels speak of that as a sudden calm. And even faster than the storm had started, it stops. Jesus wanted to get their attention, and I'll tell you what, he had it. 
And the truth was right in front of their eyes. The truth is Jesus. Well, of course, it would take some time for him to process that. And what happened? But as we look at this account, I think there are some very relevant scriptures that, that came to my mind as, as I went through this about uh, what, it, what could be a commentary in the Bible on this passage. And the first thing that came to my mind was Colossians chapter one, where Paul writes, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Every speck of dust, every particle of water was created by God. He controls it. God created everything we can see and everything we can't see. And then verse 17 of Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the cosmic glue that continues to hold it all together. Verse 17, literally, is he is before all things and in him all things have consisted. And so you have this on your outline. He has the power over all the forces of nature and he listens to the appeals of those who love him. He listens to you. He wants to hear you talk to him. He wants to hear your prayers. If you believe the truth that we just read in Colossians 1 and what we're, what we're learning in this passage in Mark about Jesus, then we should be able to completely trust him. It will give us the strength to weather whatever storm we're going through. If you remember, it was Peter who's the main source of Mark's information. That's where we think Peter got his information to write his gospel. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, to not be bewildered or surprised when you go through fiery trials, for this is no strange or unusual thing that's going to happen to you. And he's talking about the persecution of believers there. So that, that applies to us. Whatever we're going through, don't be surprised about it. This wasn't just theory for Peter. No, he'd learned this in a boat with Jesus. And Jesus says, quiet, be still to the waves. He, Peter knew where the power was. It was with Jesus. You know, the storm and the calm were, were, were both helpful and faith-building. But Jesus' instructions put on the finishing touches, if you will. And that's number three on the outline, learning through instruction. So the water's still. It's absolutely silent. And Jesus sees their fear. Look at verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you, have, do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So think about this with me. I think this is great and it's almost a little humorous because before Jesus calms the storms, the disciples are scared. And afterwards, after Jesus calms the storm, it says they're terrified. So things aren't getting better. It's like they're getting worse for the disciples. Why? Well, I think that that any of us who have exercised faith and wanted to trust God in our lives, we felt like these disciples. 
It, it feels like we're sinking and everything is going wrong. That God is asleep or he just is not aware of our situation. He doesn't care about how we feel. He doesn't care about our faith and growing our faith. He doesn't care about any of it. And it's like we say to God, if you loved me, I wouldn't be about to drown. Where's your love for me? And what does Jesus do? He calms the storm and then he turns to his disciples. And what does he say to his disciples? I can understand how you feel this way. No, that's not what he says. He says, why were you afraid? The disciples are thinking, why were we afraid? Are you kidding? We were about ready to die. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be letting these things happen to us if you loved us. And it's as if Jesus says, you're thinking about this is all wrong. I do allow people I love to go through storms. And I want them to know that I am with them in the storm. It's like we said at the beginning, storms are essential for our spiritual growth. We need the storms. And that's why I think the disciples are terrified. Because they realize that Jesus is as unmanageable as the storm was. It's like they thought the storm had infinite power, but Jesus has infinitely more power. And the difference is the storm doesn't love you. Jesus loves you. You know, former missionary and author, Elizabeth Elliot, who lost uh, her first two husbands, one to martyrdom, Jim Elliot, uh, killed by the Alca Indians in Ecuador, and then her second husband uh, to cancer, wrote this. Listen closely. You've got it on your outline. God is God and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. How often do we look at our lives or the situation of our lives or the people we love and, and we say, God, what in the world are you up to? What's going on here? God is the one who loves us. And that you can trust infinitely. And I think that leads to the next question that's on your outline. What kind of faith casts out fear? And the answer is a faith that believes what the Bible says about the power and love of Jesus. Do you believe in his power? Do you believe in his love? This kind of faith is, is a conquering faith. Why? Because, and this is on your outline again, biblical faith sees that he is in the boat with us. He is in the boat with us. And so armed with a faith-filled perspective, 
believers, we as believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus can obey the command that the Apostle Paul gave us in Philippians chapter 4. I want to read it from the message. It says this, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. I love that. And so on one level or another, I think a fear that we can all relate to is, is this dumb COVID And so what's the antidote that God gives us to that? You've got it on your outline. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So here's how that changes the way we look at COVID or anything else. We've been talking about this. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, you have that spirit in you as a genuine believer. That spirit is a a spirit of power. And as we partner with him in faith, his power is realized in our lives through through healing, healing words, healing our, our souls, most importantly. But there are times he chooses to heal our bodies and he chooses to to heal us in other ways. It uses to encourage us through the words of others. And then love, the Greek word for love here is agape. That's a sacrificial love. And when we're filled with God's transforming presence, then again, it supports and encourages us so that we can support and encourage others. We can serve them practically. We can pray for them. And then a sound mind means that we hear and we receive and we act according to God's word with understanding, with wisdom. We lean on the peace that God gives us. We lean into it. It's living with an attitude of thanksgiving before God. And we focus on the goodness of God even through our times of difficulty. You know, the early church picked up on this symbolism And they used a boat to symbolize the church. Uh, Someone had said initially it was because the mast was in the shape of a cross. It was was hidden there so that they, you know, it was almost like drawing a fish or half a fish and somebody would finish it off to see if they were another believer. But it was very symbolic in the early church, the picture of, of the church. Even as early as the first century, we have graffiti of the church being represented by a boat. Uh, You know, maybe there's something that you're fearful about. We're human. We all fear things at some level or another. Maybe it's not the coronavirus. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a challenge that you're just not up to. Maybe it's a problem that you don't see any solution to. Maybe it's a child, one of your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's something you can't even put your finger on, but but the winds are really loud and you want things to change. You know, I just finished a, a book uh, by, uh, by Armin Nikolai called the, um, the Question of God. And in this book, he, talks, he compares Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. And he, uh, he said he had taught a class, he was 
teach, he was a professor of psychiatry at Harvard. And he said before he introduced Lewis into the class, it was a, it, it grown to be a little dull, but he said, man, the, the questioning livened up, the discussions were amazing once he was comparing Lewis, C.S. Lewis, with Sigmund Freud. And one of the things that was most encouraging to me in reading this book was the last chapter where he talked about the grace with which C.S. Lewis confronted his own death. Um, as he worked through the death of his spouse, Lewis uh, made this comment. He said that bereavement is a universal and integral part of our experience of love. It follows marriage as normally as, uh, it, it follows marriage as normally as marriage follows courtship or as autumn follows summer. In another letter, Lewis wrote to a friend who was dying and said, can you not see death as a friend and a deliverer? There are better things ahead than we are leaving behind. And then he goes on, he says, our Lord says, peace, child, peace, relax, let go. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Do you trust me so little? Lewis wrote that to a friend. And then he said to the friend, of course, may this, this may not be the end for you, but at least make it a good rehearsal. Lewis had a heart attack and he lapsed into a coma and he recovered from the coma. And his friends described him as living with a calmness and cheerfulness and inner peace and anticipation in his final three months. And during that time, he wrote this. He said, though I am by no means unhappy, I can't, feel, uh, I can't help feeling it was rather a pity I, I revived from my coma back in July. I mean, having been so close and painlessly up to heaven's gate, it seems like such a shame to have it shut in one's face. I know the whole process must be gone through again. And then he said, poor Lazarus. <laughs> and then he says when, to his friend, when you die, do look me up. <laughs> Never lost his sense of humor. So how can we be prepared to have that cheerfulness and, and have that calmness and that inner peace and actual anticipation when we're ready to die? Well, this is on your outline. Lewis, again, a quote from Lewis. If we really believe what we say we believe, if we really think that home is elsewhere and that this life is a wandering to, to, to find home, why should we not look forward to the arrival? So what should we do if we fear death or if we fear anything else? It's on your outline. We're to understand that it's through storms and hardships and challenges that God grows us into Christ's likeness. He's completely capable of delivering us with a word from the storm. And the same one that calmed the storm for the disciples and who eased the trigger on Ira Sankey's assassin is in the boat with you right now. Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Spurgeon said it like this. This is on your outline, the last quote. God is too wise to err, too good to be unkind. Leave off doubting him. Leave off doubting him and begin to trust him. For in so doing, you will put a crown on his head. That's what he deserves. So let's not doubt him. Let's crown him. Think about it. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that when he was on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm for us. He went under the waves of sin and death because he went through that for us. He promises that we will have a new heaven and a new earth awaiting us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see what Jesus did for us so that we can have his power in our lives to face the storms that are in front of us. I thank you, Father, that we have this available to us in Jesus. We take comfort in that. We allow that to empower us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus.